Ah. Yep. Let's see if I can. Got it. Wow. Okay. Yep. I'm just gonna start recording. Can you pause it? That's a really good question. Let's do this. I'm Kelly, founder of Gauthier Search, a specialist data science and AI search firm. And I'm Greg, former chief data scientist at Channel 4 and co-founder of Memrise. Together, we are excited to present The Data Dig, a new podcast for business leaders, hiring managers, and curious minds. In each episode, we'll dig into, dissect, and debate a new topic within the realm of data science to get informed and make new discoveries together. We might even have a few laughs along the way. Okay, here we go. Hey, Kelly, how are you doing? Hey, Greg, I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm feeling pretty inspired uh, this week because I've been thinking a lot about the question of strategy and uh, especially through the lens that Jim Collins uses. He calls it the hedgehog concept that um, you should look for a strategy that is um, something you feel passionate about, something that you can be the very best at and also something that you can make money from. And I found it really clarifying, at least in business terms, to try and think through ideas um, through those three intersecting lens. Um, a friend of mine calls it uh, the, uh, the, the heart, what you're passionate about, the head, what you can be the best at, and the money. Um, Why is it the hedgehog concept, out of curiosity? Well, I think it's the idea that the hedgehog really is focused on doing just one thing very well, rather than the fox who knows many things. And so you're looking for your hedgehog concept that lies at the intersection of those uh, heart, head, cool. and money. Amazing. How about you? What's inspiring you? Well, I don't want to sound samey, but, you know, I was listening to Michelle Obama's podcast. I finally picked up her book and, oh, my God, I thought I couldn't love the woman more. And I actually can't put her book down. And the reason why she's inspiring me she makes like the pursuit of being a successful woman, both in a career sense and in a family sense, seem like a very noble pursuit for someone who's so successful to be translating that in such a like down to earth and accessible way has just been like really important to me recently. So that's definitely keeping me going this week and inspiring me. I had the same experience reading her book. And actually, I think I concluded that um, um, if she and Barack Obama uh, invited me to join as a thruple, I, I would say yes. Same. <laughs> um, well, so today I am really uh, excited uh, by what we've got coming up. We're going to be talking about building a data science team within a large organization and a bunch of other topics. And we have uh, a special guest, Sanjeevan Bala. Uh, Sanjeevan, welcome to the show. Hey, Greg, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. So Sanjeevan, I, I guess I'll give you a, a little bit of an intro. You are now the Group Chief Data and AI Officer at ITV, um, formerly the Head of Data Science at Channel 4. You've led multiple successful um, data teams. You've, uh, you're building on a leadership, a consulting and, and business background on both sides of the Atlantic. And, um, and you were my boss uh, for a number of years in one of the most kind of uh, enjoyable and uh, productive working relationships I've ever had. So I'm really, really happy to have you here. Uh, thanks a lot, Greg. Yeah, it's a huge honor. Um, I'm also super excited to be speaking with you today, Sanji Ben, um, because I think it's important for us to pick your brain about, you know, 
being a a senior data leader and how you manage or have managed throughout your career to drive business forward using data science as kind of your currency. So um, I want to start with when you joined Channel 4, which was in 2011, I think it was, based on my LinkedIn stalking. Um, What was the situation with data science at Channel 4 when you joined? The situation in 2011 was you know, you had a brand new CEO in post, David Abraham. He just had a natural sort of passion and interest and curiosity around how data could fundamentally transform the business model in every single aspect. Um, it was a greenfield site. There was nothing there. So it was sort of almost a startup within a big organization. And the big piece for me is you sort of dissect and break down sort of the opportunities that, you know, your career affords you is, is sort of this deep-rooted idea within Channel 4's remit where innovation was part of its DNA, which almost gave you license to sort of experiment, try, fail, and just sort of run fast, which is quite unusual and unique. Um, And I think that really stuck out for me in that it it was so baked into the DNA of the organization that it just just really shone through. And if, if anywhere to try and do this, it felt all the core ingredients were there. So I'm thinking back to that time period. So around 2011, 2012, 2013, it was sort of when, you know, streaming was really becoming a thing. You know, I was streaming episodes of Come Dine With Me on the All Four platform, if I remember correctly. And so with that in mind as a landscape, you know, streaming becoming more and more important, how did those first few years go for you from a leadership perspective and from... Uh, a productivity perspective when it comes from data science. And just to add to that context, Kelly, uh, around that time, the sort of the backdrop was all also around Netflix and how it had commissioned House of Cards using data. So there was this really strong kind of external narrative happening about the same time, which sort of meant that in the role at Channel 4, there was sort of this background sort of perception of how data could start to really change the business model combined with just macro market factors that were also happening. So as you rightly say, streaming was changing, fundamentally changing the way consumers watched content and experienced content. So moving away from a very scheduled weekly program to suddenly being able to binge on an entire show over a weekend was just complete night and day from where the business was. So for me, as I joined, you know, I certainly went through the just incredible amount of self-doubt um, and total fear and paralysis because, you know, I, I was seen as the data guy that has the answers. But, you know, it's it's more than just the data. You have to sort of understand the organizational culture. How does the organization work? How do you get things done in an organization? There were just these huge, tremendous expectations from from David and the board, given everything you would read about how Netflix was changing the game. Um, And then, you know, there's some really practical things about, you know, thinking about a really creative organization that at its core tells amazing human stories. How are you going to mix a data scientist into a really, really creative organization that things, you know, and that sort of challenge around that people challenge, that culture challenge was was, was definitely front of mind. And am, am I right in saying that it was basically a green field? That there was no data science team when you joined? That's that's right, Greg. It was, there was no data science team, no cloud 
compute capabilities, no sort of use cases for data beyond, I think, a real gut instinct that David had that data would fundamentally transform how a broadcaster would operate. And I mean, that sounds both, I, I can see why you say that there's a sort of an element in which that's terrifying as well as inspiring. Um, and the House of Cards example gets trotted out a lot. I've always thought that was a double-edged sword because on the one hand, everyone's like, oh my God, that's great that they had this insight that the data told them that they should do this. And then sure enough, it was a big hit. And and I sort of wonder to what extent it was like, the data was just like, well, it seems like politics shows are popular and everyone likes Kevin Spacey. And then the rest was they had a brilliant director, brilliant scriptwriter, brilliant cast and all the other stuff. And then the data, I don't know, it's hard to imagine that the data really, how much it really, really added. And so it set these expectations quite high, uh, but also gave you, um, gave you a license to actually, you know, play with. So I don't know, um, yeah, double-edged sword, maybe. It's an interesting piece, though, I guess, like what you say with, you know, working in such a creatively driven medium and being the numbers guy, like being the one who potentially could steer things from less of a gut feeling perspective or creative perspective and more from a quantitative perspective. It must have taken for your stakeholders to be um, really on board and advocating for you across the business. Did they and were they sort of promoting of what you were bringing to the table? Was it easy for you to get access to what you needed because of that? So I think what was really interesting at four, because David sort of unequivocally was really passionate about this, you had what everyone sort of calls, you had your top-down buy-in. So that was brilliant and that helped a lot. But I think the learning from me was all that really gives you, it gives you permission to go knocking on doors. It doesn't then follow through to where everyone then sort of, you know, does what you need them to do. So I think that journey, and I think Greg often coined the term and spoke very passionately about the centaur analysis, this idea that it isn't about the machine or the algorithm and, and you know, God forbid we go down the color by numbers route, but it's how do you bring these two worlds together where you have the best creative minds in the industry and you enhance it with what the data and the data science might be able to do as a tool that these creative, incredibly creative individuals could then use and harness to then create a potentially different sort of creative narrative and a creative story and a creative output really and in order to actually make good on that that vision i guess you've got some buy-in from the ceo but you've still got to make things happen and you've talked a little bit about knocking on doors how did you go from knocking on doors to actually getting things into production was uh, like was that straightforward or was that tricky it was quite a, a bumpy road and, and listen like we got it we got it more times wrong than we got it right, if I can be honest, Kelly. So, you know, the first iteration, we literally had sort of data scientists perhaps talking directly with, you know, a scheduler or someone in the creative teams. And it was like chalk and cheese. It was literally a car crash waiting to happen. And, and that's absolutely what did happen in a number of instances. And what we then did is we, we sort of changed direction a little bit. We, we sort of just engaged with the business, try to understand if you're in marketing, what is the outcome you're trying to achieve? and then worked back from there. And we did that across the whole business, trying to understand what is this unit, this function trying to do? How does it create value? How does it generate costs? What's the activity that unit is doing? And we use that understanding of the business or the function to then work back to then say, these are the sorts of things we might be able to do in data science. And then we got going with building teams, technology, data, processes, and all the rest of it. 
So when it was time to start building out the teams that were going to deliver on a vision, how did you decide who to hire um, from a, a job title perspective? Like who did you, did you have a model that you were trying to follow? Because at that point, you know, back in, in, in those years, like there wasn't really a model to follow, I don't think. So how did you know where to start? So I think the starting point for me was really understanding and decoding, I think, the culture of the organization. So at its core, what is this organization? And I think it was really clear from the outset, Channel 4 is fundamentally a creative producer distributor of content. You know, we're not a tech company. We're not a data company. And I think once I really deeply understood that, it became immediately obvious that we needed this sort of some people call it a translator. At the time, we called them an, um, a data strategist. We needed that role to help understand and have a business-related conversation with the business. But critically, that role also had to be able to be quite conversant with the data science team. So we started with a lot of these, what we called viewer insight managers at the time. And they acted at this, as this role to kind of almost ensure the value was being mapped the right way. And then we got going with the senior leadership team from a data science perspective, data engineering perspective, and technology perspective. And what year was that out of interest? Do you remember? Gosh, that would have been, that's cast my mind back, Kelly. It, it would have been right at the start after about sort of an eight month period of mapping value and, you know, getting the, the, the vision pitched into the, um, the leadership team at Channel 4. I'm only asking because, um, you know, I came into the world of AI and data science around 2013, and I know that that was kind of when people were just starting to talk about what data science was and it being a thing. So, you know, to try and win people over and get them to understand and conceptualize what you were trying to do before it was sort of prevalent in culture. I mean, it's still not even prevalent in a lot of working culture. Um, let alone beyond working culture. So I can just imagine <laughs> the struggle that you must have had, you know, and, and, and did, did these people, were these people even called data scientists when you initially were hiring them? No, not, not at the time we started looking. So, so, so we started with some of these roles around 2012, 2013 in, in, in reality. I think what we were seeing in the market was there are lots of data analysts um, and, and, and at the time, the skill sets were sort of largely sort of SaaS based, so proprietary technology, proprietary sort of licensing. Um, so I think it was probably around the time when sort of the HBR article talked about data scientists being the sexiest job title. It was around that time. And I think the, the, the roles existed probably on the West Coast. And I think there was definitely an emergence of the skills and an understanding of this intersection between the mass, the computing, the business understanding. Um, but I think certainly in Europe and in the UK at the time, it was definitely quite nascent and quite early and, and you wouldn't find people with that title necessarily in the UK. So we looked for the skills and the sort of almost hire for attitude type of approach is what we did initially. As, as someone who recruits people for a living in a space where job titles are fluid at the best of times, I can only imagine what fun that must have been. <laughs> And we flip-flopped a lot, Kelly, if I can be honest. You know, we went from, you need someone with a management consulting background, 
because then they understand business, right? But they didn't really understand data science. And then we flipped the other way and we said, well, hang on a minute, you need an analyst or someone that's a data specialist because if they get the data bit and they can talk data science, we can just train them on the data, on the business side. And that didn't quite work. So I, th I think we definitely evolved the model. Um, I don't think we can claim we got it right first time. But I think this goes back to my earlier point around the whole culture of innovation that was deeply rooted. We had license and permission to sort of get it wrong, try something else, learn from it, try again. And I think that's what held, I think, some of the keys to our success at Channel 4. And so uh, I feel like you've um, you've told us the two things you tried that didn't work. What did you end up landing with that you felt like was the best overall, um, yeah, I don't know, the Goldilocks solution between hiring management consultants and hiring pure, pure data people? It was actually a bit of a hybrid of the two, Greg, where we saw increasingly profiles where they had started more traditionally in an analyst type role and then moved in more slightly more generalist positions. So the combination of perhaps starting in um, as, as an analyst and sort of very hands-on coding, but then having spent a little bit of time in one of the big five consulting firms. And we saw this pattern of individuals that seemed to traverse. And it was around the same time where a lot of the bigger consultancies were started to think about building analytics practices or data practices, because increasingly a lot of their work, I think they were seeing there was a need and demand for this skill set. And it was a missed opportunity where they did the classical kind of systems integration type projects, but then couldn't empower clients to then use all these systems to create value. So I think that's where this emergence of these hybrid roles started, I think, to appear more, more prevalently. And really forward thinking of you, I think, to have these data strategists sort of in place in your organization to help to smooth the road a little bit for your data science team, because that's something that we're only really seeing. From my understanding, from what Greg has said, your data strategists basically were what we now call data product managers. And that job is only really coming into popularity now with organizations, broadly speaking. So you obviously saw a need for something that now organizations are you know, jumping on the bandwagon with. So is that, would you say that having those people in play was really critical for success overall for your team? And how did you go about finding those people? You know, because I would imagine back then there weren't many people with that specific kind of skill set. Yeah, those roles were really critical. Um, Kane, I, I think it, I'm, I'm not sure if there's a right or wrong answer to this, because I think a lot of it was because how we sort of deeply understood the organizational construct that we were operating in and how we understood sort of the, the culture, the values, how it operates, how things work in the organization. The bit we had to dial up is how do you ensure you can have those conversations with phenomenally creative individuals where data and creativity are sort of almost at polar opposite ends of the spectrum. And that role, I think, for us was critical because it just allowed it just allowed a different kind of conversation to happen in a lot of those sort of slightly serendipitous moments when you're talking to a scheduler or a commissioner, which then allowed us to then start to create traction and a conversation you could build on. And it built those relationships with the business. And I think that was really key to get right for where we were and the organization we were operating within. So once you established your 
data science organization or data organization? First of all, what did that look like from like, uh, can you, can you kind of map it out for us and for our audience so they can kind of visualize it? Yeah. So, so the, often the debate, something I've seen in organizations is do you centralize the capability or do you decentralize it? Mm-hmm. Do you insource it or do you outsource it? So is it a strategic capability or do you think you know, you're never going to be, there's not going to be a core competency? Once you've gone through those sort of debates in almost like a two by two, you then get to the, where do you put it? So do you put it into marketing? Do you put it under technology? Do you put it under strategy and finance? And again, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer. I think for us, we were quite determined because we had the remit from the CEO that this capability should have um, end-to-end sort of potential to unlock value. So how we commission content all the way through to how we monetize content, which meant that we put it centrally and therefore it had a line into the CEO. And the reason that was really important, it then it gave us license to look horizontally across the organization and think about how it might create value for marketing or commissioning or scheduling or um, commercial teams. And that was really key for us because it, it gave us a, a strategic organizational wide remit Within the unit, we then had your data strategists that would then work into the business and often would map into certain parts of the business. Data scientists that are the core skill set within the within the um, the unit itself. Uh, we had data analysts that were much more sort of web reporting, web analysts initially, and then we had engineering that was in technology. And I've seen that model before around where do you put data engineering and where do you put the platform aspect of engineering. And bear in mind at the time, Kelly, you had sort of in a traditional broadcaster, the technology remit is to look after legacy and maintain the legacy doesn't fall over so that the screens don't go black. And you've got this new, really exciting data sciences using cloud technology and Hadoop and all these different distributed kind of technologies, which is quite exciting for technology. And they're keen to play with all that because otherwise they're really maintaining legacy. But how do you ensure that can run fast enough and in the right way and is aligned to what the data science team needs. And that's where you get into sort of just operating model chinks and challenges around how do you get these relationships to work effectively? And how do you get them to work effectively? <laughs> the million dollar question. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and again, we tried a few models, um, I, I won't lie. I think what, what really got success for us was um, it's, it's, it sounds really simple now, Kelly, but it was almost getting all of the different parts of the business you need to do something right up front at the earliest possible stage at ideation phase of a particular project. And it was a simple thing, Kelly. The challenge the, the technology teams had was they found it really hard when we build something up for the business really quickly and give it to the business to play with. The business loves it, wants to then use it in a production context. It's thrown over to technology it's the first time they're ever hearing about this. They're on the back foot already because you've got a business stakeholder saying, I want this, I want this now. Data science have done it, why can't you? And it just it just fragments all relationships. The simple notion of just calling technology in right at the start of a project that may never go into production, but just the notion of just letting them in there to have the chat, to hear what you're thinking about, to see what the idea is, the potential value, made a world of difference. Totally. So giving technology a seat at the table from the outset, allowing them to feel empowered and also probably to manage expectations 
with the business as to what's possible. Absolutely. Because the reality was with a lot of what we found, Kelly, was that most data scientists back then weren't writing production grade code. So I could do something really quickly, create a bit of value, hack it together really quickly, business gets value from it. But at three in the morning, when that thing falls over, I didn't want the phone call saying this thing's fallen over, right? That's a really different skill set. So the beauty of working with technology is it's all done robustly. It's scalable. If it falls over, someone gets the phone call to re-trigger it. All of that operational stuff you just need, that's not a data science skill set. And what happened when we brought these things together, there was just greater empathy. Suddenly, your data scientists really understood what happens when things go wrong. Who gets that call in the middle of the night? Your engineering teams really understood the speed, the cadence, the link to value that the data science team were trying to achieve. And I think just getting the, each one to walk the shoes of the other individual and the other role really helped that sort of just that empathy and humanizing what we were trying to do. I can totally understand that. So if we switch tacks for a minute, um, so we've talked a little bit about how we can make things happen, but how do you choose what to work on? How do you choose which problems to tackle and with which parts of the business? It's a really good question, Greg. Again, this is another one of these ones where we didn't get it right first. There's a pattern emerging here. Um, so we, we, we first started with being really value driven. So unless there's a number we could put at the end of this, unless the stakeholder is not signing off on this, we're not going to do the project. And that sort of worked in that would go after the most obvious use cases like commercial advertising, like marketing. And that was great. But what we found in the data science team was that, that they are, they love the intellectual challenge of solving problems. And because they deeply understand data science, loads of ideas would come out of data science that would never see the light of day in the business. And so what was happening after a while, it was the data scientists would feel quite disenfranchised because they get a request, they'll be told what they had to build. It was a predictive model to predict an audience, let's say, and it was using quite basic techniques. That's not real data science, right? So there's a real risk we'd lose some really good skills if we didn't find a way to connect the data scientists and give them a bit of creative freedom to sort of flex techniques. So we then flipped the other way well, we then had greater context that was shared with data science. So we helped them understand, here's how marketing works. Here's how commercial works. Here's how scheduling works and help them understand the business context. But then Greg created loads of mechanisms by which, you know, we'd run ninjutsu days, for example, which were just an afternoon. You'd, you'd take a business problem and they'd lock themselves away and they'd hack together different ideas using different techniques, using some of the most emerging technologies and emerging techniques out of data science which would then stimulate and create lots of ideas. Out of some of those days, some of those days that we would run, we would then create valuable business products that we could then go back into the business, pitch the business as an idea and get the business to kind of work on it. So it was very much a, a pull from the business, but also a push from data science that allowed us to kind of balance this idea about innovation, but almost applied innovation so that it was always linking back to something the business needed and the way the business could create value from. As your time at Channel 4 progressed, I mean, you were there for eight years, there must have been changes and improvements in how you ran things, I have to assume. Although I can imagine that affecting any change would have taken quite a long amount of time, ultimately. By the time you left, was everything kind of structurally 
different to how it was when you when you started? You know, we're talking like eight years into data science even being a thing. You know, machine learning engineers are now a thing. Um, did you do a lot of sort of, um, were there a lot of changes ultimately in how you ran the little organization or did it, did it, did it stay pretty much the same? No, it, it, it meandered, it twisted and turned. It did all sorts <laughs> of things. If I could be honest, Kelly, I think, and Greg will remember this. I think, I think we rebuilt the team two or three times over as well, because we were losing talent um you know uh, and, and so that became quite a challenge i think with every sort of iteration i think it was that classic thing around how can we think about making kind of small improvements to how we operate and i think the bit we really got right actually was the culture of how that team operated there was this real culture of excellence that greg certainly promoted this idea that when you're building something build it with productionization in mind at the outset don't think about it as an afterthought we used to run things like an Greg initiated a lot of these, actually, the idea of a pre-mortem. So before you even do a project, imagine all the things that's going to go wrong with it, write them all down, step back, and then think about how you're going to fix these things. Um, the, the, the simple principle of the five whys when something goes wrong and really getting into why something goes wrong, not the superficial, oh, I forgot to do this bit of code, something, but, but actually deeper than that. And how do you get really deep? Was it you forgot the code or was it that you're really busy doing all this other stuff that you were stretched? Or was it even further and deeper than that because you didn't have the knowledge and the capabilities as a training component? So really deeply getting the culture right for us, I think, was the bit that that just transformed so many things from the average tenure people would spend in the team because they really enjoyed it there. There was a culture of excellence, a culture of sort of having an impact in the organization. The idea that we were continuously learning, we wouldn't get it right. We were okay to fail. I know it's an overused cliche sometimes, but genuinely when we did fail we'd stop we'd step back we'd reflect we'd learn we'd change something i think that just created a, an amazing cultural environment for, for the team to operate within and then we we shifted things around kelly so you know before there were very fixed roles your data scientist your data engineering now you've got things like DevSecOps, but we started blending those a little bit so in some of our data scientists they had an they had an inkling for data engineering and they were fascinated by architecture and infrastructure so they would lean slightly on engineering side of things but what that meant in the team we had this sort of this hybrid skill set in the team and this cross-pollination of ideas and this sort of this empathy about how the other roles would work and that just created just a it's just a great place to be if i can be honest it was really enthusiastic very energetic it was it was it was infectious and contagious i think and and people that would join and other parts of the business that would see it would just see this buzz of energy that I think was really infectious. Now at ITV, it's, there's going to be some commonalities, I'd imagine, but also quite a lot of differences, perhaps in terms of it's bigger and it's, it's a more commercial organization is my guess. Um, are there things you're doing differently or how have you had to adapt um, to that new environment or based on what you've learned? Beyond the scale and size, Greg, it's the um, one, how do you narrate the story of data and data science externally and particularly to the city because that's a really important stakeholder that certainly we didn't have it at four i think the other piece then is um this idea of of cadence and speed and agility when in a much larger organization how do you start to accelerate those cycles when there's just a a larger number of stakeholders you need to work with and manage 
and ensuring you almost over communicate and you take even more time to ensure that everyone's really clear on what this journey might look like. You manage expectations around some of the pitfalls um, and, and you try and calibrate how you might do this based on the organization's appetite for risk. And risk, I'm fascinated by risk because everyone wants innovation, right? But with that comes risk. And actually what I've found and learned at ITV, it's not so much that it's the risk itself, it's helping executive understand the risk. And then everyone can make a very conscious decision. And all too often you see in organizations, there's not necessarily an understanding or a quantification of the risk. It's a perceived risk and that can stifle innovation. So the classic, how do you continue pushing and innovating when perhaps there's a perception or an, an, an enhanced perception of the level of risk? And how do you start to unpick that? So can you give an example of, of where you might, of how you might communicate about that risk or an example of a problem where there's inherent risk and it, it might be enough to, to squash it unless you can find a way to present it that makes it um, interpretable or digestible? Yeah, I think a lot of the things we've done internally is, is help bring to bear external context. So we talk a lot about sort of outside in. So what can we learn from external organizations? How are others approaching this problem? How are others thinking about the risk aspect here? And then the second piece is, is being really explicit of the range of scenarios that we might be looking at when we're thinking about that particular risk. And I think it's through those two things that that's helped have a framework by which you can then navigate through the conversation to then help individuals and, and leadership teams to feel comfortable because they have an understanding of worst case scenario versus likely scenario versus least case. And they're comfortable traversing up and down that. And I think that's the piece for me here, certainly, is is the more you can do that, surprisingly, the, the greater risks we're willing to take, because there is that innate understanding of the, the two things and how those two things are linked. And actually, this um, relates to one of the things that I always um, most enjoyed watching when I was working with you. I always felt you were really good at managing upwards, even if you didn't necessarily relish the task. I guess if if you had any advice for someone who is trying to build a business case for a data capability within a large organization, do you have any kind of top tips for how to get that buy-in, that budget to build momentum out of nothing? The big thing I found here is, is almost don't even talk about the data, purely express everything and talk about EBIT and revenue. And the reason that's so important is because it then places the narrative around a growth strategy for the organization rather than a capability discussion, which either philosophically everyone says, well, of course we need a data unit, everyone else has got one, but that only gets you so far. And the other power of always linking it to EBIT and revenue is it means beyond the first initial investment, the PLC boards will always want you to come back in every year to then have that ongoing growth conversation around where do we now go next? What additional investment might we need to make? How does this then drive growth? So very quickly, you become part of a growth story for the organization, which is really powerful and galvanizing when you think about the interaction with the board and how you then manage upwardly, as you mentioned, Greg. And once you have that, you then into the operating model, the culture, all the other aspects. That makes total sense. I guess I wonder on that premise then, where you go when you know you want to continue that growth trajectory and stay ahead of the curve like who are you looking to for inspiration who are you collaborating with where do you take your cues as you try and drive 
innovation and continue a path towards growth on an ongoing basis? I think a lot of I, what I find, Kelly, is um, I, I'm always convinced the answer lies externally. Um, and, and how do you bring more of that into the organization? So there's, there's often links with academia and universities. So you, you just get to have a very different nature and style of conversation. So we had a graduate program at, at, at four and, and we're shortly launching a, a different program, but a graduate program. And that gives you great links to academia. The second tier then is is conversations with private equity firms because they get sight firsthand of what's happening really early on. And what I tend to look at as well is not just in the sector I'm in, but in other sectors. So what's happening in ed tech? What's happening in pharma around IP? What's happening with things like non-fungible tokens? How does that apply to our business? And what can you learn from those things? And what are the what are the principles and keys that you can then bring in? And then the last piece I think is is other large listed organizations and how are they operating these things? What are the challenges there? And that just helps you calibrate, I think, where are you with your reference points and what are the cultural, organizational, structural challenges that traditional large organizations have? And where do you and how do you think about unlocking those and unlocking those sort of at a faster cadence? I think that's the other piece with all this as well. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. I've got to say, I have really enjoyed hearing this story almost from outside, hearing about how you, how carefully, you know, how you managed to create a situation so that when I showed up, there was like a team and a budget and loads of cultural buy-in from the rest of the organization. I was like, oh, well, this is great. <laughs> but uh, creating that from nothing, I mean, that's a whole other game. Um, and also, I think the willingness to experiment, because as you say, there's just it's unlikely to be a one-size-fits-all answer and and the, the willingness to make mistakes or at least um learn from what came before and and try and uh, improve on it i mean it definitely felt that the model that um you know we ended up with where you had the data strategists or data product managers uh, as a, a conduit to the rest of the business i mean it worked really well uh from my perspective at least um so the iteration did lead lead eventually uh to a good place it seems. I want to just say, Sanji Van, actually, um, you know, I feel like I'm really pleased that you're kind of our our finale here in this series because you just make such a great case for having someone who's super down to earth, super enthusiastic, and great at translating something that's very kind of inaccessible to a lot of business leaders into something that's very easy to understand. And you've made a really compelling case for it here. So, um, you know, no surprise as to why you've been successful, as successful as you have in your career. And um, it's been really inspiring speaking with you today. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Kelly. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great to see you again, Greg. We hope you enjoyed our chat today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. As always, we'd like to say a very special thanks to Misha Frankel-Duval for producing our podcast and bringing today's episode to life. Join us again in two weeks' time when we dig into, dissect, and debate a different area of the ever-changing data science landscape. Bye for now.